Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the reason to celebrate and worship you that we have this morning. First and foremost, in and of who you are, your glory, your majesty, your authority, your power, your truth, your mercy, your love, your grace. These hold our attention as we quiet our souls of the distractions and sins that beset and look instead upon your majesty as we recall your deeds towards us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we read of them in the pages of your scripture, as we remind our souls of your faithfulness to us, the testimony of each believer, guarded, guided by your Holy Spirit, day after day, your mercies new every morning. Lord, as we look in the mirror of grace, we see ourselves clothed this morning in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. For those that know you have repented and believed that his gospel is their hope. This reminds us of the pictures of old, even that of Joseph we've studied recently, who from the storehouses of his royalty supplied his brothers with clothing, in spite of their sins against him, absorbing in himself their abuse and instead granting mercy and grace rather than holding their debt against him. We see in this our Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, who died for our sins, instead of giving us what we deserve, grants us His righteousness that we, we may be justified in good standing, have audience with and fellowship and reconciliation with the Father. We recognize these things as the overflowing gifts of Your grace and mercy alone. I pray that our worship would be fitting for the reminder of Your gospel and our attention would be close and rapt as we open Your scriptures and study what You have revealed about these glorious truths and our confession our boldness, our faith, our testimony, and our joy, we pray too, would be encouraged and strengthened as we behold the glories of the gospel in your holy word. May your spirit use the means of grace to turn us from these things that would blind and distort our vision, and instead to see Jesus Christ, his work on Calvary, his enabling grace, and his Holy Spirit's power more clearly today as your word is proclaimed in the gospel and dramatized in this meal the table of our Lord, the communion celebration of freedom in His blood and broken body. Thank you for these precious gifts we have. May we treasure them all the more, and may your name be glorified in the presence of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, I trust with hearts reminded of the great privilege that we have to gather in Christ's name, to worship Him together and to open His holy word, that you'll turn with me to the one chapter of Jude as we continue in our first Sunday communion uh, service series entitled this uh, morning's message anyway, Love and Mercy. These are two aspects of our relationship with the Lord that Jude admonishes the holy to pursue to be mindful and, re and reminded regularly of the love of God and the mercy of God. This stands in stark contrast to what he warns us against. That would be those who fall into the category of the unholy or ungodly, who seek to diminish the glory of God and are ultimately enemies of the gospel unless and until they repent and believe. This morning, the aim of my message is to convict and encourage us, the hearers, according to the love and mercy of Christ, and also according to the warnings and admonitions of Scripture. May we be convicted and encouraged as we hear the word proclaimed to have a stronger foundation still of our own soul's contentment, resolve, conviction, and obedience to the glories of Jesus Christ and the calling that He has laid out for us in light of His saving work. With that, would you stand as you're able, out of reverence for the word of God this morning? And let us consider these scriptures that I trust have become familiar to us now. This is Jude 16 through 23. Consider now the holy word of God. These, speaking of the ungodly, are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, 
devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained, even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So following the format of now the third message in the series within a series, we're considering in two columns characteristics that mark the ungodly. And then in the second column, primarily admonitions, instructions, directions for, those, uh, for the holy. That would be those who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ, believers, followers of our Lord. Jude's admonitions to the church continue toward his goal of equipping true believers to identify and to oppose anyone who would seek to diminish or deny the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ. We've taken verse 25, that great doxology prayer, closing benediction, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen, as our theme. And then the application of that theme, warning and instruction, that we might contend for the faith, as was the duty of the early believers when Jude first wrote, so that those who seek to undermine any of those aspects of our Lord, that we would have discernment to identify it and also to and strength and confidence to oppose those persons and efforts. This equipping that Jude exhorts the church unto involves discernment sharpening, our ability to tell the difference between the holy and the ungodly, our ability to see the schemes, the wiles, the deception of the enemy, that might come in and undermine our faith, our confidence, our consistency of walk before Him, our faithful obedience unto Him, or the priorities of the church as she gathers and walks in the name of Jesus Christ. So we need to have our discernment sharpened, but also our faith built. This equipping that Jude exhorts the church unto unto involves strengthening our, our faith and sharpening our discernment. Jude uh, supplements his brief letter with references and allusions to greater scripture. There are many references or parallels to the Old Testament all through the book, and we've touched on a few of these and we'll do so again this morning. Both Old and New Testaments, in fact, are in Jude's mind. Primarily this morning, we have 2 Peter 3 as a parallel text. So we'll flip back and forth to see what the unity of the apostolic message might exhort us with this morning. In this context, the depth of his writing, Jude's writing, is better appreciated when we take these references into account. Thus, we will seek to understand or to enhance our understanding of his words with several cross-references today. Our series in Jude, for the last couple sermons, has been organized around those two columns I mentioned before. Today, we'll consider two aspects of each. That is, Jude describes the ungodly in verses 16 through 23, or more specifically, (coughs) in our verses today, (coughs) 18 and 21, Jude describes the ungodly, um, or his descriptions of the ungodly versus his admonitions to the holy. If we place these two references side by side, we find that the contrasts are helpful in strengthening our understanding and discernment, which is necessary to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So let me give you these categories that we'll consider this morning. On the one hand, Jude says, whereas the ungodly are scoffers, on the other hand, the holy keep themselves in the love of God. So that would be our first distinction we'll consider. And secondly, whereas the ungodly follow their ungodly passions, on the other hand, the holy wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and the promises of that mercy, even eternal life. So as we consider this then, in verse 18, Jude uses this phrase. We'll highlight this in introduction as well. I said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers. So that sets a tone of context as well. Those, that uh, phrase, in the last time. What does this mean? Well, this reference I offer to you, submit to you in the context of the consistent teaching of the New Testament, 
recognizes a significant sh uh, change in history with the Incarnation. The Bible divides history in two major categories. All that existed and everything that happened, the events and the prophecies that preceded the coming of Jesus Christ. And then the last times, or the uh, last days in some sense, are everything after the coming and the arrival of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Within these two major divisions, there are other smaller subsets. So there is such a thing as the last days of the last days. That's harder for us to pin down as there is some mystery about God's purposes and how many the elect will be and how much more work the kingdom of God has before the consummation or its final note. And thus Jude's instructions are applicable for us today because as his readers lived in this sense in the last time, we certainly do as well. This reference considers then the societal context of a world in the post-incarnation side of history. That is, the world, the people that dwell in it after Jesus has come. In the last time, or in this reference, the technical term is eschatological, or that which refers to God's purposes for time, and God's purposes for future time. This echoes Peter's use of the term the last days, that parallel text, in 2 Peter 3.3 as well. So given this understanding and possible correction against a limited yet future application of these texts, it nevertheless stands to reason that the relevance for the church uh, for this passage and 2 Peter 3 has only increased since the time of its writing and I suggest this is why these words appear so striking and so relevant and so applicable for the day in, we, in which we live. So in light of this, let us listen to Jude's instruction with all the more rapt attention. I'll give you a heading. I've touched on it already, but this will organize just two major points today. Jude emphasizes distinctions between the following. Number one, scoffers versus those who keep themselves in the love of God. And then the second major point follows two other references. Jude emphasizes distinctions between followers of ungodly passions and those who wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Underneath this, our outline's very simple again. What do scoffers look like? And what does keeping yourself in the love of God look like? And then the second point, what does following ungodly passions look like? And finally, what does waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ look like? And we'll seek to answer these questions in the context of Jude, 2 Peter 3 primarily, and a brief reference to Isaiah 3. So that is a layout for our sermon structure this morning. So let us continue. Number one, Jude emphasizes differences or distinctions between scoffers versus those who keep themselves in the love of God. Let's consider first, what are scoffers? What does scoffing look like? What do scoffers look like? And Thayer's, it's a Greek lexicon, has done some in-depth study, the authors of this work, and they've compared this reference to one from Isaiah. And this is one of those Old Testament allusions Jude is likely drawing on. So turn there to chapter 3 with me, if you would. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah deals with the distinction between scoffers and the faithful as well. In the context, this would be before Jesus came. However, these principles are imminently relevant. They're relevant for us today. And Jude draws on language like this to be sure to draw distinctions for the church of his day. In Isaiah 3, 1, the prophet writes, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, and all support of water. Verse 2, he's taking away, or let me just add parenthetically, he's also taking away the following. Here's a list, verse 2. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. He goes on, verse 3. The captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful musician, and the expert in charms. Verse 4. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppose one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. And the youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. 
Verse 6, For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you, shall have a clo- or you have a cloak, you shall be a leader, and this heap of ruins shall be your rule. And it goes on this way to describe the social conditions when scoffers begin to rule. Verse 12, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. There are two kinds of There are two general categories of character that are qualified to order a society for there to be stability and continuity and good relations in a people group, in in the context here of a nation, a society, a community, and a church. And basically, the two uh, major categories could be described as those who are scoffers and those who are humble, and in their humility, therefore, keep themselves in the love of God. When scoffers rule the roost, when they are elevated to positions of influence and authority, it is judgment on a land, and it is destructive to any society and any church. So according to Isaiah, what do scoffers look like? Whereas the prophet declares judgment on the people who have flaunted, here, uh, the prophet declares judgment on the people who have flaunted their sin like Sodom, And as a result, they will be ruled by infants. So scoffers, according to Isaiah, are childish, capricious fools. That is, people who are ruled by their base, sinful desires, with no consistency and no foundation. And they embrace foolishness as a way of life and as uh, basically the worldview and set of values that they pursue. Those who scoff, they scoff at what? They scoff, in the context here, at wisdom and integrity, at self-denial, at laying down one's life and submitting to a higher cause and a higher call as it's defined and prescribed according to the Word of God, the ultimate standard of righteousness. God's Word upholds, or they scoff at the uh, standards that God's Word upholds as admirable, things that we should desire, and attainable, things that we can grasp, but require humility, submission, discipline, and being teachable, admonishment of others who represent or communicate or means to portray and to give us, to teach the authoritative truth of God's Word. So we see a contrast to this uh, scoffers in examples in the Old Testament, also like 1 Kings 12.8. Do you remember there are two categories uh, this was Rehoboam, he's about to assume the throne, and he's deciding what kind of character and policies will I pursue in the rule of the nation. So he has the older and wiser, more humble, uh, humble and tempered by life counselors. And they say, be a kind and judicious ruler. Take into account with humility and grace the welfare and well-being of your people. But on the other hand, you have the scoffers, the young hotheads, the ones who rule, by, they want to rule with an iron fist. In their insecurity, they want to assert and impose their authority. And they say the only way you'll respect these people's attention and, and obedience is if you rule with an iron hand and exact twice as the tyranny of your father. So on the one hand, childish, capricious fools seek to take advantage of the situation. And in so doing, what do they scoff at? The wisdom and integrity of God's Word. They don't live their lives in light of the love of God, as uh, Jude exhorts us to. They don't live in light of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they live, they scoff at these things and live in light of the moment and the sinful conditions of their own heart and the fallen world which surrounds them. It is plain in the context of Isaiah 3 that scoffers stand in contrast to what otherwise might be elevated and acknowledged and valued in society. Things like the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, and the elder. These are categories that people affirm when they're of more sound mind. Counselors, skillful magicians, men of rank, some of these are uh, pagan, but but, uh, generally through this you see a sort of continuity of those who are the elite and the called and equipped to hold a society together. The scoffer is the opposite of these. He's not a mighty man. He's not qualified to be a soldier. 
He doesn't have the character or ability or wisdom to be a judge. He is no prophet. He does not respect the prophets. He does not respect the judge. He's no diviner. He can't tell the future. He refuses even to believe the prophecies that are written in the scriptures. The Lord who holds the future in his hands. He's no elder. He might be old, but he has not gleaned by reason of experience in his uh, by reason of experience, the wisdom or the uh, lessons he's refused to learn of his life in order to pass them on to the young. No, he, he's not fit to be the captain of 50 or a man of rank, a counselor or skillful in any sense. No, instead, he is, a scoffer is, a weak-willed opportunist, ill-equipped to discern or champion anything of substance. So that this would be the Isaiah 3 context. What do scoffers look like according to Isaiah? They are weak-willed opportunists, ill-equipped to discern or champion anything of substance. I think in our day we have many examples of this kind of scoffer. Seems the higher in politics you advance, the more you demonstrate this kind of infantile, childish, capricious foolishness. When we, if we recognize this to be a pattern in our own life and our own society, we need to recognize that the Word of God says this is part and parcel of His judgments. Because the people do not value the integrity and the righteousness of God's Word. Because they have not made it priority to serve Him, to follow Him, to consider the most important questions of life, the love of God, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, how might it be saved, and upon what strong foundation might a people in a society be built? The consequences are that our guides mislead us, and they swallow up their people in the course of their paths. They rule with infantile petulance and idiocy, and those who are least equipped to rule end up advancing to the most prominent positions. As the Lord removes from us support and supply, the natural conditions and prosperity that we come to rely on as a society. What is his intention of doing so? To turn us away from sin and back to the substance and the qualifications of what strong leadership and discernment and understanding look like. We are to reject the scoffers and all that they promise. We are to identify and to oppose them. We are to discern that these kind of things, this short-sighted infantile thinking, uh, should not characterize us or the church, but instead we are to stand against it and to be a light in a dark day such as ours, the times of Isaiah or the times of Jude. What are scoffers according to Peter? Another parallel text. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter 3, Jude is certainly referencing I believe, when he says the admonition of your apostles, the instructions of your apostles, probably primarily he has in mind Peter himself. Reason for this assumption is the similarity of language between these two references. Consider 2 Peter 3, verse 4. They will say, well, let me back up to uh, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. You see the similarity there? Incidentally, these two references to scoffing are unique in the New Testament. The two places where this word is used is right here in 2 Peter 3 and also in the book of Jude. With warnings, the context in both is warnings to the church. So, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days, or as Jude writes, then in these last times uh, and so forth, using the, uh, similar language in the last time, following their own sinful desires. And he goes on, they will say, so this is, this, these are attitudes and ideas that characterize the scoffer. Quote, the scoffer says, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the water was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of who? The ungodly. Same references, but a little bit greater context. Surely, when Jude says, listen, he says, 
Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of your Lord Jesus Christ. He has Peter in mind. Peter, we've touched on this before when we were preaching through 2 Peter, but Peter expounds on the character of the scoffer to warn the church and to equip us to oppose them. Scoffers, according to Peter, they mock and dismiss the sovereign and divine order and intent of history. God has ordered history by His sovereign power and to His particular end. There are three major categories, theologically, that we recognize of, the, of providence, which is God's sovereign control over everything. And they are preservation. God preserves all things for His glory. Concurrence, everything that happens, happens according to or along with or by virtue of the purposes of His will. And then governance, it's towards an end. God has a purpose for all things in mind. The non-scoffer recognizes that history is not shaped by a bunch of random events that are mixed up in the bowl of chance and then poured like soup across the landscape of history or nation or a people. No, we're not byproducts of some weird chance, you know, a conglomeration of space, time, and matter that exploded out of nothing and somehow exists in orderly form today against all odds. This is not the truth of things. This is the scoffing lie of quasi-scientific unbelief who since Darwin, that since Darwin has infected the minds and the souls of the people who believe such things like a virus, like a contaminant that prevents them from seeing, from opening their eyes to the sovereign God that has created and ordered this universe for a particular end. So we need to recognize the scoffers who seek to base their rebellion against the Lord on false authority claims that, that falls short of recognizing what is obviously true in the scriptures and in the world around us. That is, history itself, and by extension creation, is ordered divinely and powerfully by the Lord for a purpose and an intent. A common expression today based on an appeal to authority and the, of, of quasi-science is Dar, Darwinian cosmology, that is, a theory of the origin for all things independent of a designer, one who has purpose and intent and power and is over and independent and categorically separate in the nature of his being from what is created. Instead, the rebellion of our age, as in any age, seeks for sort of sophisticated ways, they think anyways, to justify believing that there is no ultimate over us. These, the aspects of this assumption fit hand in glove with another denial of divine and order, divine order and intent. And that would be God's purposes in design for creation. You see, if God has made all things and directed all things, then you must know who he is. The non-scoffer who is troubled at the thought that something must account and explain for everything. I must know him. And the most important question in all your personal life is, I must be in right standing with him. Because by extension, if he's made and created all things, why did he make me? And for what purpose am I here? Now, if you deny the possibility of a sovereign God who has revealed himself and has a purpose and a way of salvation, then you live your life as a scoffer and a capricious fool, running in circles like a chicken almost dead with your head cut off, bumping into things with no purpose and order and your decisions and your will, no consistency and your emotions or your goals, your ambitions, but lost aimless and hopeless without God in the world. This is the difference, according to Peter, between scoffers and those who keep themselves in the love of God. Those who keep themselves in the love of God have discovered in Christ their purpose for existence. They don't scoff at it, but embrace who they are in Him. And this is the only antidote for the alternative, which is living life foolishly according to our sinful desires. So according to Peter, scoffers deliberately overlook things, aspects of revelation. They deliberately overlook scripture. They deliberately overlook the evidence of God in creation. And therefore, they do not uh, see the perspective of God's word in matters of context and that they ought to appreciate. In other words, they overlook, the scoffer does, aspects of God's word like prophecy, covenant, and faith. God's purposes for the future, God's covenant, his relationship with man, and faith. The conviction that, these, that the future will continue to unfold according to these categories. 
the scoffer looks out at the landscape of creation and closes his eyes to the obvious testimony of these things. And he beholds a book, like the, the, the Bible, as a book in his hands and slams the cover, as it were, ref, uh, refusing to consider the truth and the wisdom and the knowledge that it holds. So these are scoffers, according to Peter, scoffers according to Isaiah. And then we come full circle back to Jude. And with this context in the background, it helps inform what he is telling us. He speaks of scoffers too in historical terms, Jude does, back in verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who did not believe? Who were they? They were the scoffers of the Exodus trial. Those who did not have the fortitude or faith to stand on the promises of God during that 40-year journey from Egypt to the promised land. They were the ones further referenced by Jude's words in 11. These uh, are akin, he speaks of the ungodly, to the way of Cain and when abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish perished in Korah's rebellion. It was when the ground opened up, kids, you remember this? We talk about this dramatic event. It's incredible. You have the camp of the Israelites separated into two groups of people. One, the followers of the coup, the rebellion staged against God's appointed servant, Moses. In a limited and typological way, he was the judge, the savior, the representative of Christ's authority on earth, God's authority to lead the people. And you have people rebelling against him. What were they? The scoffers. And Moses said, all you guys stand here. If you follow them, you go ahead and stay in this camp. If not, you go over there. We're about to see a mighty work. Kids, what happened? I love to ask this question. What happened to the followers of Korah? The ground opened up and swallowed them. That's correct. So according to Jude, the plight of the scoffers uh, or of, of Korah, those who perished in his rebellion, they're the ones who characterize scoffing. Korah's judgment was a signpost for scoffers of God, of God's appointed means of grace. When God has raised up his gospel, his truth, and his means for communicating to that to us, if we reserve the right in our skepticism and our rebellion and our heart of cynical unbelief to reject those things and to not consider them with humility, to not be interested in learning, but instead more interested in finding reasons to deny them, then Korah's judgment, according to Jews, stands as a signpost for the fate, for the judgment that is deserving of scoffers. Scoffers have, according to Jude, too casual of a relationship with the worship of the one true God. May we be convicted by this. Scoffers have too casual of a relationship with the worship of the one true God. You know, there were scoffers even in Aaron's own household at the time. Do you remember when his son said, we don't really need to follow too closely the prescribed means of worship. We can offer strange fire. We can do our own thing in the worship of the Lord. What happened to them? Well, they likewise were judged. They had too casual of a relationship with the worship of the one true God. This ought to be convicting to us. Scoffers are those who can kind of take it or leave it, have a casual relationship, or are very passive about their faith. They maybe have an association. Yeah, they're reluctantly following Moses to point B on that journey, but their heart really isn't in it. How many times between worship services are we, do we in our sin display this kind of dangerous passivity? We need to repent and recognize the difference between the attitude of the scoffer and return ourselves to the Lord and, the, and to keep ourselves in the love of God. Let's move to that point now. What does keeping ourselves in the love of God look like? This is an antidote to scoffing, if you will. Set side by side, I find it's helpful because if you're troubled by the thought, how do I avoid the pitfalls and temptation of the cynicism of life and being jaded by the cares and the challenges that face me day in and day out? Well, Jude's answer is to keep yourself in the love of God. He says, verse 20, but you, notice the contrast there. The one hand you have, the ungodly. On the other hand, the holy who are admonished. But you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith. We talked about this last time. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Well, first, Jude opens his book and giving us the foundation 
for being kept or being counted among the loved of God. And this is glorious because it sets us free from the notion of salvation by works or striving. In verse 1, Jude says this, acknowledging the mercy and grace of God. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are, we have a triad, a group of three, those who are called, beloved, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, and kept. He says further, verse 2, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So there we have two references to love. We are loved by Christ. We are kept in the love of Christ by virtue of His mercy, His peace. He has called us and He keeps us. This is the promise of the gospel we need often to be reminded of. There is a dual aspect to Jude's instructions in this regard to keep ourselves in the love of God. And first we must recognize what he opens his book with. We are called, beloved, and kept by virtue of the kindness of God independent of our own striving. The kindness of God, we are saved by grace through faith alone, independent of our own striving. But then he goes on to another, having established this foundation, this is the order of an application of these truths of the gospel. Having established this foundation, he goes on to admonish. Keep yourselves, in verse 21, as we have just read, in the love of God. Jude recognizes implicitly in his letter that there is a relationship, that the relationship between faith and works is consistently taught across Scripture. We are saved by grace through faith, but as we have touched on recently, from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we are saved unto good works. We are saved by grace through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But we are saved unto good things to do, good work, productive Christian living, obedience to the law of God, which Paul says, echoing Jude, in as many ideas has been which God has prepared beforehand. That is, these works have been prepared by God beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's a sovereign element, but there's also an active element. God has ordained these works, but we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God, so to speak, by walking in them. And of course, these works include spiritual disciplines alongside heeding the admonishments and warnings as a means, we often use the term, means of grace, to strengthen our relationship with Him. So you are set free and given the foundation by grace through faith alone to pursue the Lord and to follow him and to live out as fruit of that gospel reality, keeping yourself in the love of God. Let's turn to 2 Peter 3 to see what Peter, how Peter might express and reinforce these words. That is, what does keeping yourself in the love of God look like according to Peter? In this parallel passage, we pick up in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is, the fullness of God's promise expressed in new heavens and new earth future, but since you are waiting for these, he instructs us, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So there we have echoes from three authorities in New Testament church instruction, Peter, Jude, and Paul, to keep yourself in the love of God in so many words. To embrace your calling, to embrace the obedience of Jesus Christ, to walk joyfully, worshiping Him and following His word. In so doing, to embrace God's sanctifying work in your own life. This comes with difficulty and trial, of course but it is by design. The challenges that God gives us to face and to endure and to walk through, just like that journey pictured from Egypt to the promised land, are to do certain, or are to temper, to encourage, to sanctify us, to turn up the heat of trial so that the gold of God's purposes is purified, to remove spots and blemishes. And we are to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. That is, the waiting of the Lord for the fullness of His covenant promises is a good thing. Why? Because the fruits of salvation work out in and through us along the way. This is what keeping ourselves in the love of God looks like. 
Now this morning, according to Peter, may I hasten to add, and this would be the context of Jude as well, that keeping ourselves in the love of God means avoiding the destabilizing errors of the lawless, those who aren't interested in the righteousness of Christ and the holiness of our Lord, those who are not interested in being starkly different than the character and the values, the culture and the norms, the virtues, the perversions that are celebrated today, these are not a good influence. They are instead destabilizing. These are destabilizing persons and errors who advocate such things based on lawlessness. And so we are to encourage one another to embrace the trials and the purposes that God has ordered in our lives. Why? Because they are by design to encourage us in the love of God, to keep us, to keep us in the love of God, and by so, in, in so doing, to act as a preventative maintenance against embracing a scoffer's heart and attitude. So this morning, we have the communion table before us. We have the elements that are represented by the cup and by the bread, uh, the very cost of our salvation, as we say every month. Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. This morning, as we participate in communion, if your heart is in right standing before the Lord, if you are a believer, the communion table will be open to you. And as you approach the communion table, this is one application, an aspect of how we can keep ourselves in the love of God. We need a tangible, active, regular reminder of what Jesus did to save us. Every time we approach this table, walk forward to receive in hand the bread and cup. My prayer for you, for each of us, is that our heart would be tenderized a little more with each step forward and that he would remind us that we were blind, dead, hell-worthy sinners, not deserving of his grace or kindness, but through Jesus Christ, that inestimable sacrifice where the blood of the atoning substitute was shed. We have favor, reconciliation, kindness, and the glories of eternal life promised to us. And as we do that, and as the nourishing reminder of the blood and body of Jesus is taken on our lips symbolically, it is a means, another way, to keep ourselves in the love of God. I've referenced this before. I'll say it again because I think it's worthy of repeating. If you're planning a family vacation, if at all, if it's at all feasible, don't avoid worshiping with God's people when you're on vacation. Just get on the internet. It's pretty easy these days. Never been easier in all of history to find a solid church. They, they broadcast it on their own website invariably. So find a good church. And you might plan your vacation even around the Lord's table so that you don't miss a whole month. If that's the schedule as it is in our church here, celebrating it together. Why do we do these kinds of things? Well, we want to adjust our schedules around the priorities and the importance, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, because it's a means for us to keep ourselves and our family's attention to where it ought to be in the love of the Lord. So be exhorted and encouraged accordingly. Second major point this morning, uh, Jude draws a distinction. He emphasizes a difference between followers of ungodly passions versus the other, on the other hand, those who wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, back to our text this morning, he says in verse 18, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. But then we contrast this with his counsel in 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we have two categories thus emphasized. On the one hand, the ungodly follow their ungodly passions, while on the other hand, we, the holy, if you know him, are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, even mercy unto eternal life. What does following ungodly passions then look like? Well, Jude recognizes the conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah as a typical example or as an archetype. So if we go, if we uh, reference this, we see this reference in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. So what does following ungodly passions look like? 
Well, it's embracing the social values, if you will, of Sodom. It is organizing yourself and uh, living in light of and according to your uh, sexual immorality, if you will, or by extension, any ungodly passion. That term passion, at the root of it, is patient. Um, in theology, we recognize that God is without passions. In other words, God does not feel things that are independent of him. In other words, God is not acted on by an outside force. God has emotions and there's an expression of his character that is toward us in love and God is angry and we see these expressions of who he is. But it's important to recognize that this is not God reacting to something over him. This helps us understand what a passion is. Passion is submitting to a higher power over us. So if you're to follow ungodly passions, that means that you are a slave to feelings or desires, affections that are over you and controlling you. That is, ungodly passions are the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit characterized by self-control. You are either in the one side, the ungodly, controlled by your passions, or in the, walking in the Spirit, you are controlling yourself and your sinful desires. And this characterizes so much of the discipline of the Christian life. What does a society or a person look like if they abandon that call to die to oneself daily, to crucify their flesh, to walk in the Spirit, to continually see virtue and value and, per and pursue with perseverance, holiness, and righteousness? Well, they are given over, Paul says, to a debased mind. And the archetype of Sodom and Gomorrah characterizes the consequences of this kind of activity. Sodom is the archetype. Even before Sodom, we have Babel. There's these event oracles, as I call them in Scripture, that serve as a signpost again. They serve as a classic example to illustrate, us, illustrate to us wickedness and its consequences. So there is deserving judgment that the Scriptures proclaim for this kind of wickedness and embracing it as your organizing principle. This is a message we need to understand and be very confident to oppose because we live in a world, in a society that is increasingly ordering itself in submission to ungodly passions and even de defining oneself, their character, according to their unsanctified, their wicked and perverse sexual proclivities, to name one example and then demanding that all of society recognize and affirm and celebrate this kind of thing, and then naming a whole month, the month of June, according to these wicked desires. This kind of thing is the characteristic, these are characteristics of Sodomite, Gomorrahite thinking. The organizing principle of pagan civilizations is represented in our day and these impulses and historically in the scriptures accordingly. Isn't it uncanny how the values, uh, how the sins of our day find a perfect corollary in the scriptures? This is because God is sovereign and true. His word never returns void. It is always relevant. It is sharp like a two-edged sword to pierce, to discern, and to show us right from wrong. Humanism's hope, given this proclivity and given over to sinful desires, humanism's hope is found in the affirmation of the collective. My neighbors embrace it and are doing it, then we have more confidence to act accordingly. There's this kind of authority of the majority that the world relies on. Why do you think our society is so obsessed with democracy? They worship at the temple of democracy. What is democracy? It is just the will of the majority. And you can bet in any society, especially one as wicked as ours right now, the will of the majority is generally sinful. So is there anything to be celebrated as virtuous by the will of those, by the changing whims of culture, by the systemic scoffing and the unbelief and foolishness and the capricious rejection of the law of God that we see around us? No, all of this is according to the archetype of Sodom. Each generation, ours included, and we must stand as a light to proclaim this message, must reject the impulse to double down on the devil's first lies. Lies as old as the garden, hath God said? Has his word really spoken? I don't think you're interpreting that right. I don't think you're taking into account the cultural context. The Bible, I don't think, calls that sin. I think God loves us enough to indulge my homosexuality. 
the unbeliever might say, or any other LGBTQ, so, and so on and so forth, identifying individual. Hath God said? No, I say. And you are obligated to affirm who I am. Now, second lie, you will not surely die as a consequence of sin. That is a lie. The judgment and the consequences of sin, we're some of them are upon us right now. According to Isaiah 3, we see it in the ridiculous and absurd leadership that is over this country. These are ungodly passions that are systemic and, are, and the ungodly have doubled down upon them, believing the enemy's first lies, hath God said, and we will not surely die as a consequence of sin. What's the third lie? You can be like God rather than subject to him on matters of good and evil. You can be like God rather than subject to him on matters of good and evil. So these are the kinds of things that undergird the justification of pursuing and considering normative, normal, one's ungodly passions. And Jude, Peter, all of the scriptures equip us with the discernment to recognize this and to oppose it. If we tolerate or join any of these movements, what are we doing? We're diminishing, if not outright opposing, the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ. We can do this in our own personal lives by indulging sins, sins that are against the Lord, and by justifying them, by taking matters into our own hands rather than submitting ourselves to the law of God. This, each individual in Sodom and Gomorrah that were burned on that day had done that in their hearts. But their sin had more consequences still as it metastasized with that of its neighbors and condemned a whole civilization. Today, the modern missionaries of Sodom and Gomorrah are making inroads with their sexual identity, cultural, revolutionary perversions into governments, churches, schools, libraries, city councils, corporations, rural communities, universities, media platforms. Who's ever heard of Pompeii? There was a giant mountain. I know one of you guys knows the answer that exploded and buried Pompeii. Judah, shout out the name of that mountain. Mount Vesuvius was a volcano in the region of Pompeii. Pompeii was well preserved under a mountain of ash when that volcano exploded, historians tell us, in A.D. 79. Well, it's interesting. One time, or years ago, uh, archaeologists became aware of this area, and you guys might know the story. It's fascinating. They found gaps, little holes in the ash. And on a whim, I imagine, uh, one guy filled up, mixed up some plaster and filled the hole, a little more plaster until it was full. Giving it some hours to dry and moving the ashes away, what did he have? A perfect casting of a scoffer. A perfect sculpture of a scoffer. You see a dead body who had refused to obey the Lord and lived in that perverse, ungodly society, met the judgment of God in an exploding volcano and refused to remove themselves from that community, or he, and I'm generalizing here and making assumptions, but generally speaking, that is what cataclysms of this kind represent. God, as he has given us the archetype and signposts, the event oracle in Sodom and Gomorrah, reminds us through the course of history of the fearful and fiery consequences of indulging in our immorality and pursuing our ungodly passions. And so this, this civilization stands as a stark reminder, a modern, if you will, after the Bible was concluded, signpost of history of the consequences of sin. When we behold things like this, it should move us to fear and to reverence of the Lord. It should move our affections to reject the so-called new and improved ideas of wicked culture and to embrace the tried and true theology of the old hymns and the word of God, which never changes. I hope when you hear those old songs that have stood the test of time, that your spirit, your heart, your affections resonate with that foundational reality of the gospel. That is the only way to stand and the only strong foundation in the shifting sands of the culture who prefer to follow their ungodly passions. Second Peter also echoes this once again, turning back to our parallel reference in 2 Peter 3, just to touch upon it briefly, as Peter instructs us to. 
behold the admonition for our apostles. He uh, explains in 1 Peter 3, 3, the following. He says, uh, that's, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3, 3, the following. As we go back to his instructions, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And there again, that's followed by evidence of the same, where they refuse but actively avoid the evidence of God's holiness, his power, and his character. Thus, according to Jude and according to Peter, we see these examples in context of what it means to follow one's ungodly uh, passions, following one's sinful desires, and then seeking elaborate mechanisms of self-justification as the fundamental motivation to organize ourselves. And this, if left unchecked and unrepented of, because it's a kind of cultural rot and systemic unbelief that characterizes a society, a community worthy of judgment. Let us turn to him in times like these, that we may follow and stand as a light and in opposition and in contrast. And that brings up our final sub-point this morning. We've considered what followers of ungodly passions look like. What does it mean? What does it look like to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? The mercy that leads to eternal life. Again, in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you... Sorry, that's 2 Peter 3. Getting my references mixed up. <clears throat> Toggling back and forth once again in Jude. In verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What does this look like? According to Jude, if we see it, if we recognize in context once again that verse 5, there's a waiting element in the context of this Old Testament example. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There was a waiting element in the journey of the ancient Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. Forty years of difficulty and trial but many failed this test along the way. The Christian life as an ultimate commitment, it is, I suggest, the ultimate commitment to delayed gratification. You know, even the ungodly sometimes, or the pagan recognizes this as a virtue. If you are willing to delay gratification to save money, for instance, to be able to afford something more expensive in the future. Well, the Christian life is the ultimate expression of this kind of thing. Much of our lives is characterized by waiting. That is, waiting for the fullness of what is promised to us in the gospel. We have the glories of salvation assured us in the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ. But we have greater glory still, being set free from the effects of the fall inside and outside. Not just our wayward hearts, but the wickedness of a fallen world. The sin and the sorrow and the pain that attends our way. So as we wait for the Lord, and as we wait for those glorious, that glorious future, we must do so with patience. We must not give up hope, throw up our hands, and be like those scoffers in the wilderness who grew tired of waiting for the promised land and therefore grew weak in their faith. I don't think you'll really bring us there, Moses. I'm starting to doubt if it actually exists. Were the promises of God any less true on year 39 than they were on year one when God said, I will bring you into the promised land. Were the promises of God any more or less true when he had prophesied to Abraham 400 plus years earlier, I will give you a land and make of you a great nation and kings shall arise from your loins. Absolutely not. Peter and Jude both recognize that to maintain our perspective, we must keep our eye on God's sovereign purposes in redemption history. Peter tells us, don't mark time as the linear, mere, mere human beings do, but mark time according to God's purposes. God is not bound by our expectations, but he works on a different level and a different plane. And when we affirm this, it gives us grace to wait. There are many of us who are waiting for answers to prayer. Many of us who are waiting for the realms of glory, waiting for a revival in our land, waiting till marriage, young people, 
to enjoy and to, uh, and to welcome all of the beauty and the joy that comes with the consummate marriage union. Waiting characterizes many aspects of our Christian life. Is it worth the wait? Absolutely. Does it take faith? Yes. But waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, even unto eternal life, is a huge part of our call. And so this morning, let us wait with expectation and faith. And let us embrace the means of grace, even the table of the Lord, to grant us grace to stand in a day such as ours. So remember these things as you approach the Lord's table. Now as we transition, a few instructions for you. Those who are seated closest to the back, if you have repented, turn from your sin. If you trust Jesus Christ and Him alone as your Savior, then the communion table is open to you. Search your heart and come with reverence before the Lord. As you partake in your hand of the bread and the cup, return to your seat. After we are all served, I'll come back and then we will take the Lord's table communion together. Welcome now to the table of the Lord. 